told me that we've been, we started Revelation about a year ago, and uh, of course we had Psalms for the summer, which took up about three months, and we finally come to the end of it today, and we're going to cover Revelation 22, verses 18 through 21. So it's a short passage, but I'm going to supplement it. Psalm, or Revelation 22, verses 18 through 21. Now, <clears throat> let me just say a few words about this book. I'm convinced that the book of Revelation can be clearly understood as long as we follow two rules. Rule number one is we must not come to this book with any preconceived ideas. If you think you've got to figure it out, you're not going to understand this book. It's going to taint your understanding. The second thing is it's important that we do not read this book through the lens of a particular theology. Now, my students understand that statement, and you may not, but if you hold to a particular theology, and most lay people don't, but many people do, if you hold a covenant theology and you read the book through covenant theology, it's going to, you're going to read it through those lenses and you're going to interpret it according to your theology because you'll want to make it fit into your theology. If you hold a dispensational theology, you'll read it through that lens and you'll want passages to fit into your theology. And that's just the way we are. We're humans. So we need to look at this book as objectively as we can. That's a very, very difficult task. It's been very difficult for me to do that. Our goal has been to put ourselves in the shoes of the original hearers. Now remember, this book was read out loud to the churches when they met for worship. Uh, people didn't have this book like we do. They didn't read it. 90% of people in the Roman Empire were illiterate. They had to put an X next to their name. You don't think of that. There were only about 10-15% of the people that were literate. This was not a book that was read by the church members. It was a book that was read to the church members. And they heard it being read. We are trying to put ourselves in the shoes of those who heard this book being read and ask ourselves, how did they understand it? If you can figure out how they understand it, then you figure out the book. Now here's what we've been able to conclude by doing that. Number one, we've discovered that Revelation is a prophecy that was given to John by Jesus through a series of visions. John is not in a state of consciousness when he receives this. Now, his body's awake, but suddenly he is into a, in a trance-like state and he's starting to see pictures in his mind that are literally inspired from heaven. And in these pictures, the future of these churches is revealed. That's why it's prophecy. So it's a book of prophecy that comes through a series of visions. The second thing we know for certain is that this prophecy is addressed to seven churches in the region of Asia Minor. 
So, it's written to them. It's not written to us. It was written to be read to them. It's for us, but written to them. Okay, number three. The prophecy contains both warnings and encouragements. And the warnings and encouragements are aimed at the members of the churches in Asia Minor. And it's aimed at people who have compromised their faith. Or who are on the verge of compromising their faith. And these are exhortations. Uh, they're mainly compromising their faith or on the verge of giving in in order to keep their jobs. Or in order to escape persecution that John says is coming upon the church. And the way they compromise their faith is when they go to these various meetings that were required of people in the Roman Empire, such as guild meetings that included meals, they were making sacrifices to the Roman gods. In every one of these meetings, you had to make sacrifices to the gods. You know, well, how did you do it? Well, they would ask you to lift up a cup of wine and then pour out a libation to the god. One of the gods of Rome. That was how they compromised. Should we sacrifice to foreign gods? Should they sacrifice to foreign gods? No. And everyone had to, when they lifted their cup, say, Caesar is Lord. And to say Caesar is the Lord is to deny that Jesus is Lord. But in order to keep their jobs or not face persecution and possibly even death, they did it. Or they were on the verge of doing it. Some did it and some were on the verge of doing it. So, John warns the church members to repent immediately. Reorient their lives back toward Christ because Christ is going to come and clean out that mess. Those who have compromised are going to be judged and he's also going to bring the downfall of the Roman Empire. Is the Roman Empire still standing today? No. He certainly has done this. Are the seven churches of Asia Minor standing today? No, they've been judged too. He did exactly what he said he would do. So the warning was to those people who were compromising or on the verge. And he said, don't do it. Because I'm going to come and I'm going to take you out and I'm going to cause the fall of the Roman Empire. It was an encouragement to those people in the church who remained faithful to Christ. No matter what it costs them. They said, no, I will not pour out a libation to the gods. No, I will not say Caesar is Lord. And the Roman Empire said, or their employer said, you're out of a job. Or we're going to throw you in jail. You're going to be put to death. Say Caesar is Lord, bow the knee or be put to death. And there were people in the church that remained faithful. And so this is a letter to, of encouragement to those that to remain faithful no matter what the cost, even if it costs you your life. And Christ promises those people, in the end, He will vindicate them and they will inherit the kingdom of God that comes on earth. Now, with that, you understand the book. That's what it's about. And it makes very good sense. Now we come to verse 18 okay, of chapter 22. And I want you to notice that this is an, an admonition 
about altering the context of this prophecy. Okay, this is an admonition warning them not to alter the context of this prophecy. Look what he says. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice to whom this warning is issued. To everyone who hears. That would be all the church members who are there when this thing is being read. The warning is to the church members. Remember it was read aloud. To everyone who hears the words of this prophecy. Look at the content of this warning. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. What plagues? The plagues that we've seen throughout the book. The plagues that are going to come upon Rome. The church members are going to be part of those. They're going to receive those plagues as well if they edit this prophecy that comes through John in the visions. Now notice what he is saying here. The plagues, and don't forget that word plagues because you're going to see it again. If anyone adds to these things, look at this, if anyone adds to these things, uh, the revelation here is complete. It's final. There's no additional information that's needed. So what he's saying is, if someone would happen to stand up in the worship service and prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord! And add some details to this prophecy that's not in here. Don't listen to them. Uh, those are not words for me. And you know, people can set dates and they can say all kinds of things that's not in here. He said, if anyone adds, or how about if someone stood up and said, let's try to overthrow the Roman Empire, thus says the Lord. No, you don't do that. <clears throat> he said, you don't do that. So if anyone adds to the words of this prophecy, God will add. You want something added to your life? Here's what God will add. Add to him the plagues that are written in the book. Conversely, look at verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book of life, older translations say, older manuscripts say, tree of life, from the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. So, we have, don't add, don't take away from the prophecy. So, if someone stands up and takes away from the prophecy, such as Jezebel that we met there back in chapters 2 and 3, a false prophetess who's in the church, but they all think she's a real prophetess. And she stands up and she says, Thus says the Lord! Rome is not going to fall. You have to keep your job, don't you? Just go on the way things are going, because you know John, he's an old man, he's right on the edge of senility. He hears voices, he sees things. How can you believe all that? Now this isn't going to happen. You know? And they take it away. They say, you know, you should worship Caesar. Hey, didn't God create government? How many times have you heard Christians say that? Didn't God create government? Shouldn't we respect those who have authority over us? Let's show respect to Caesar. Caesar is Lord. That's not what this text says. It says the person who does that, God's going to take his 
part out of the tree of life, which means they will not have eternal life, from the holy city, <clears throat> that's the new Jerusalem, it's coming down, and from the things that are written in this book. <clears throat> so, what we have is these are curses. Uh, you will be cursed. Now, this entire revelation is written in the motif of what we call covenant blessings and curses. Let me say that again. This entire book is written in a literary motif that's known as covenant blessings and curses. And I want to show you what that means. It's nothing new. It's something we should all understand. What is covenant blessings and curses? I'm going to show you what it means and then you'll see how it fits right in with the book of Revelation. Okay? So I want you to take your Bible, <clears throat> keep your finger in the Revelation, but take your Bible and go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? <clears throat> book of Deuteronomy. <clears throat> See if some of this doesn't sound familiar to you. And when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, <coughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, go to chapter 4, and we'll read verse 1 and verse 2. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1 and verse 2. And here's what it says. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your the God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you. You see that? Nor shall you take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So here's Moses established. God establishes a covenant with Israel. And in the midst of this covenant there are blessings and there are curses. And this message that Moses preaches, which are commands how to live until they enter the promised land, until they get to this land that they're looking for, he says, don't take anything away from what I've said. Don't add to anything I've said. Now look over at chapter 12. Still in Deuteronomy. And when you get to chapter 12, And you look toward the end of that chapter. You see in verse 31 the concept of false gods. That God, is, God says you shouldn't be involved in this false god. <clears throat> and then look at verse 32. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. You see that command? What we see in Revelation is the same thing. God has given John a revelation of the future. This is what how they're to live. He says, don't take away from anything that I've said and don't add to anything that I've said. Now, if you do take away or you do add, there comes curses. Okay, now watch this. Go over to chapter 27. Chapter 27. And when you look at chapter 27, Moses is still speaking to the people. And look at verse 1. 
Deuteronomy 27, verse 1. Now Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I have commanded you today. You need to do it. Don't add, don't take away. Now what? Look what happens if they do not obey. Look at verse 15. Cursed is everyone who makes or carves a molten image. Look at verse 16. Cursed is the one. Look at verse 17. Cursed is the one. Look at verse 18. Cursed is the one. 19. Cursed is the one. 20. Cursed is the one. 21. Cursed is the one. 22. 23. 24. 25. 26. Everything right there are curses. You see that? Curses. Now look at chapter 28. Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of your Lord. If you do what he says in the prophecy here, he says certain things will happen. Look at verse 2. All these blessings shall be upon you. Look at verse 3. Blessed shall you be. Look at verse 4. Blessed shall you be. Look at verse 5. Blessed shall you be. Verse 6. Blessed shall you be. And it goes all the way down throughout that chapter. And uh, all the way down to verse 14, he talks about what it's like to keep the commandments of God. Then look when you get down to verse 15, look what it says. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe. Look at verse 16. Curse it. Look at verse 17. Curse it. Look at verse 18. Curse it. Look at verse 19. Curse it. You see? All the way down. The Lord shall send cursing, verse 20. And look at verse 21. The Lord will make the what? Did I tell you to remember the word plague? Do you see that in Revelation, that's very common language that John is using? And what he's doing here, he is saying in Revelation that with this word comes, with this covenant that God is making with these people, comes blessings and curses. And you saw what happens to the person who adds to the word or takes away from it. The same thing that happened to the people of Moses' day, who took away or added to his prophecy, who didn't obey it or altered it. So, John says in Revelation 18, curses. Now, look how Revelation opens, by the way. Sort of interesting. Go to Revelation 1. Revelation 1. Just so you can see the, the motif here, so you can understand how this book is laid out. And look at verse 1, Revelation 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things that must shortly take place. And he sent and he signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all the things that he saw. And look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and what? Keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, how does Revelation open? It opens with a blessing. How does it end? With a cursing. If you don't obey it, these plagues are going to be added to you. This is a blessing and a cursing motif. It opens with a cursing and here a blessing, and here's what he does. 
Throughout Revelation, he puts in those blessings. So you'll know that. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And throughout Revelation, he puts in the cursing, the plagues, the plagues, the plagues, the plagues. And he intersperses these throughout the entire book. He starts it with blessing, ends it with cursing. Now let me just show you this. Look over at chapter 14 to Revelation. <clears throat> there are seven blessings. The first blessing was Revelation 1, 3. Who was blessed? The one who faithfully read that to that congregation. Didn't deviate, didn't add, didn't edit, read it just the way John gave it. Who else is blessed? The person who hears it and keeps it. Okay? That's blessing number one. There are seven blessings in Revelation, or seven Beatitudes. Have you ever heard the word beatitude before? Did Jesus have beatitudes? How many beatitudes did Jesus have? Anybody want to take a guess? If there's seven here, what would you think Jesus might have? Three? You know how many he had. Now, now remember what Jesus... Blessed are they... What? Poor in spirit. So guess what? Not haughty, not say, oh yeah, what? No, no. When people persecute you, you don't you know you show love back, you'll be blessed. You don't fight back. Jesus gives beatitudes. Well, there's seven beatitudes here. Now look at the second beatitude in Revelation. It's found in fourteen. Revelation fourteen. And look at verse thirteen. Back you can look at verse twelve. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. Verse 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. In other words, those who keep. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So here are people who are blessed. Guess what? They're blessed in the fact that they died. Because they kept God's word no matter what. And you say, they died! That's horrible! Guess what? It's a blessing. They're going to be vindicated. They're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Look at chapter 16. Chapter 16. Look at verse 15. 1650. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches who's on guard, and keeps his garments. Do you see that? Remember the garments back in chapters 2 and 3? You have white linen versus soiled garments. Here's one who's not soiled himself with Rome. That's the person who is going to be blessed. Okay, look at chapter 19. Chapter 19. Now we come to the fourth beatitude. By the way, we'll look at verse 8 first. It says, And to her was granted she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. See, you're going to make it into the kingdom. The person who remains faithful, doesn't give in to Rome, doesn't sacrifice to the demons, ends up in the kingdom of God and sits at the wedding feast with Christ. Look at chapter 20. Look at verse 6. 
Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Blessed is the one who is holy. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. That's the believer who has remained faithful. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests and God, priests of God and Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's the blessing for those who are faithful. We will reign with Christ for a thousand years. Look at chapter 22. The sixth of the attitude. Okay, look at verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he who, what? Keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. You see that? There's the blessing cursing context. Blessed is he who keeps the prophecy of the words of this book. Look down at verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the, the right to the tree of life and enter through the gates of the city. These are the blessings. The cursings are found throughout as well. And we saw that in chapters 2 and 3, for example. And now look at verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. There's the cursing. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part in the book of life or the tree of life from the city and from the things which are written in the book. There's the cursing. You can count them. Now look at verse 20. And he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Notice, surely. He who testifies. That's Jesus probably saying this. Uh, says, surely I'm coming quickly. I guarantee it. He's saying that to those seven churches. He's going to do what he said. He's going to bring the downfall of Rome and he's going to clear out the churches. Then John, John adds this. Amen. So be it. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And now the final benediction. John adds this to those seven churches. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he uses the word Lord. The grace of our Lord Rome believed that Caesar was Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You will need enabling grace to keep the words of this prophecy. And just as the first century needed grace to keep the words of this prophecy, so we need grace to remain faithful unto the end just as well. Just as this church was called <clears throat> to keep the covenant that God made with them, even in the midst of difficulties, no matter what it would cost them, so must we. Now, when I say so must we, guess what you think? So must Americans. Is the church limited to America? No, the church is around the world. Is the church around the world suffering? We're the ones that are off the hook. And we suffer more than you realize it because we compromise more than we realize. It just doesn't quite cost us as much. But the church around the world is suffering. And they need the grace to remain faithful because it's so easy to cave in. The church in Saudi Arabia is suffering greatly. 
The church in Turkey is suffering greatly. Turkey is tightening the screws on Christians. <clears throat> I have a student of mine, I won't mention his name, but you know him. Many of you know him from the church. Who went to <clears throat> Israel on a mission trip. And they went to the West Bank, where the Arabs lived. And they brought big bags <clears throat> of grain to give the people on the West Bank. And he thought, oh no, what am I going to do here at the West Bank Arabs, you know he goes into their house, and everywhere he looks, there are crosses and pictures of Jesus. He assumed that the Arabs living in Palestine were all Muslims. They're not all Muslims. It's a large, large, large percentage of Arabs that are Orthodox Christians. And when he dumped the big bag, 50-pound bag of grain, they all just raised their hands and said, Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Because here, another Christian from America brought food to their family. Now listen to this very carefully. I'm going to get myself in trouble, but I want you to listen. Okay? I want you to listen. You say, We stand with Israel. Now listen carefully. What you mean is America stands with Israel. And America has every right to stand with any government that it wants to stand with. It's doing who are its allies and supports its agenda. The Christians stand with no nation. Ultimately. We stand with the kingdom of God. Was that Arab family a member of the kingdom of God? Yes, it was. So do we stand with that Arab family? Yes, we stand with that particular Arab family because they're part of our country, the kingdom of God. Now, Israel in that situation, are they persecuting that family to some degree? They are. They're oppressing them to some degree. And you might say, well, the uh, Palestinian, uh, whatever it is, PLO or whoever it is, you know, they deserve to be oppressed. No one says they should. I'm not saying anything. I'm not talking about politics here. I'm just saying that family happens to be part of the Palestinian network, who is suffering under a government, which just in this case happens to be Israel. It could be any government of any world. Any Christian anywhere that's in a government that's being persecuted by that government, because they're Christians, are being persecuted for their faith. Now, in this I'm only using this as an illustration. We could use Turkey if we wanted to. But in reality, what you have is the Israeli government is holding these people down, and it just happens that there are Christians in there among those Palestinians. Christians don't stand with any countries when it comes to wars and border disputes. Christians don't stand for war. We don't stand for supporting countries, ultimately. Because guess what? If this country right here turned around on a diamond, it can happen, can it? And it started persecuting Christians. Our government. Would you stand with our government or would you stand with the other Christians? See, that's what happened to Germany, didn't it? Suddenly the government under Hitler started to persecute the Christians. Did the Christians stand with Hitler? Believe it or not, some of them did. Some of the Lutheran churches, some of the Catholic churches stood with Hitler. They said, well, we have to live, don't we? We want the doors of our church to stay open, don't we? Let's compromise it. Compromise, compromise. He had them in his hands and then he just smashed them. And then there were others like 
Martin Niemöller, and there were others like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and there were others like Karl Barth, and there were others that I don't need to mention who said, no, we stand opposed to this government, we stand for the kingdom of God. And many of those died. And let me tell you something. The book of Revelation is a book about empires that oppress God's people. We just happen to be living in a country where we have relative freedom. But it doesn't matter what country it is where a person lives that's a Christian, and whether they're being persecuted and oppressed by the Israeli government, or the Saudi Arabian government, or the Turkish government, or the American government, it doesn't really matter. We stand unified with every Christian worldwide in the kingdom of God. And that's why Christians cannot support uh, armed conflict. Because that's what Jesus doesn't support, armed conflict. I say, my government's going to go and fight wars, and guess what? Governments have a right to do that, and that's what governments do. But the church never has a right, ever, to stand for war. Because when we make war against another country, guess who's on the other side of those lines that have been didn't join the army because of their freedom to join an army. They were drafted by the other side and put on the front line. And guess who's on those front lines? Christians. I have to stand with the Christians. And when you realize that, the church, therefore, doesn't make a statement regarding nations and wars and nation buildings and all that. The church stands for the kingdom of God. And the church is in every country, and we find ourselves in every country. We are dispersed. We have embassies in every country, churches in every country. And therefore, we only stand for the kingdom of God. And that's something that Christians can't understand. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's something American Christians can't understand. Because of our relative freedoms, we think America is a Christian nation. And we may have had a lot of founding fathers that were Christian nations, but let me tell you, the guys that are ruling it, ruling it now aren't, are they? And this is why it's a very difficult thing. It is very difficult. So... <clears throat> What we have here, if you were in John's day, now look, what I'm talking about, put yourself in John's shoes, in the shoes of this first century church. What is Jesus telling them to do regarding Rome, where they're living? Is he saying support Rome? Is he saying pledge your allegiance to Caesar? No, he's saying just the opposite, isn't he? He's saying, don't pledge your allegiance to Caesar. He said, well, that's fine if it's Rome, but not America. You see? Well, our allegiance is the one Lord, and who is that Lord? Jesus Christ. We live in America, and we are patriotic. We love our land, but we do not have to love governmental policies. See? We stand above governmental policies when it comes just to the church. Just the church. And the church supports only the kingdom of God. So, that's what we have to do. And so John concludes his uh, teaching here. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you. Because that's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to stand above the fray when it comes to this. And then he says, Amen. He says, So be it. He says, It's going to be a hard thing to do. But he says, Amen to everything Jesus said. Now, <clears throat> that's pretty hard. You say, Well, are you a pacifist? I'm a Christian. 
See? Now, this is why, if you haven't thought through these things, this might sound really radical to you. But what does a Christian stand for? Christ. Peace. Kingdom of God. Not killing other people. Do governments kill other people? Yes. And when they do, guess what? We say, well, that's what governments do, but that's not what I'm going to do. Because if I go to war and I start pulling the trigger, I may be shooting a Christian on the other line and killing somebody in the kingdom of God. So that's why uh, those people who have studied the book of Revelation see that it is a book that is written about Christians living in an empire or a country that are forced to back down and not give their allegiance to that country when it comes to the oppressive things they do. You support your country in everything you can support your country with. Whenever your country's in line with the things that God says and it's doing the right things, you can support your country. But when your country turns and says, okay, we're going to kill other Christians out there, then guess where you have to stand? Then you have to stand with the Christians. And that's a difficult thing. So the book of Revelation, when you really look at it, becomes a... uh, a book that's calling for the believers to come out of the world and give their total allegiance to the kingdom of God. It's a hard book, but it's a book that is really important and something we all need to think through. We'll stop there. Next time we're going to start in the book of Matthew, which probably is not quite as controversial. And we're going to start with the birth narratives of Jesus and the, uh, the genealogies. We'll see why they're so important. Father, we thank you that we could look through this book. And uh, it forces us to think. And that's my prayer, is that each one here will think through some of the things that were just said. And make us get into conversations about these things and not just be like lemmings that are following the Pied Piper. Help us to think what it means to be a follower of Christ and give our loyalty to Him alone, ultimately. And when it's good to support our government, when it's not good to support a government. And Lord, we know there were times when the believers were living in relatively relative peace in Rome, and they prayed for their emperor, and they gave honor to the leaders, but when the government turned, and starts turning against the church and the kingdom of God, then we must withdraw from the support in those areas. So Lord, help us to learn this. Uh, This is my desire in Christ's name. Amen.